0: Section 4, the first positive task of schizoanalysis. Uh, we will be reading from the top of 335. You can join us on YouTube and watch us there. Uh, we are live right now uh, for the two viewers there. But hey, it's a it's two people. Why not? Um, but we'll go ahead and uh, keep going. Um, let's see. Any major announcements this week? Um, I don't think so. I think we're we're charging ahead. Um, we are excited to have a handful of new patrons on Patreon. So thank you for those uh, who all have said they don't really want to be super identified except for like two. So I'm just going to say thank you. Uh, because of you, we're going to be able to actually launch a little website with a little bit of a zine thing going on in the week or two coming up. So super, super fantastic. Thank you, guys. Uh, I don't have to dig into my my drastically shrinking wallet uh, to support the server anymore—it means it means the world. So thank you guys very much. Um, I know we've got announcements in all of our other readings. Uh, Lou, do you want to start? Yes, I, I wanted uh,
1: to announce on the Foucault group behalf that they start new stuff this week. In, in fact, later today, I think um, they finished Madness and Civilization and. It's the per- perfect time to join them again. Also, the Botriac group started up again, so go check that out. And as always, we are continuing our journey into Bergson on Thursday.
0: And the Bergson group is basically the Blues. <laughs> So it's really, really good readings uh, for what we're talking about in here we do reference it so please do join that group or any of our others. I know uh Jack is in here or Jack was in here uh talking about our literature group was our lit group reading this week. Yeah, we're finishing
2: Les Spectre on Saturday. We'd be postponed for a week because of Thanksgiving. So,
0: thanks taking. Very nice. <laughs> uh and I think uh, that's it. Otherwise, uh, please uh, do join our Discord server. It's going all the time. Uh, we are always having uh, some semblance of a chat, at least somewhere in the realm of what we're discussing today. But I will uh, continue to read. Uh, we will dive forward at the top of 335. Freud himself, indeed, spoke of the link between his discovery of the death instinct and World War I, which remains the model of capitalist war. More generally, the death instinct celebrates the wedding of psychoanalysis and capitalism. Their engagement had been full of hesitation. What we have tried to show apropos of capitalism is how it inherited much from a transcendent, death-carrying agency, despotic signifier, but also how it brought about this agency's effusion into the full imminence of its own system, the full body, having become that of capital money. Suppresses the distinction between production and anti production. Everywhere it mixes anti production with the productive forces in the imminent reproduction of its own, always widened limits, the axiomatic. The death enterprise is one of the principal and specific forms of the absorption of surplus value in capitalism. It is this itinerary that psychoanalysis rediscovers and retraces with the death instinct. The death instinct is now only pure silence in its transcendent distinction from life, but it effuses all the more. Throughout all the imminent combinations, it forms with the same life. Absorbed, diffuse, imminent, death is the condition formed by the signifier in capitalism, the empty locus that is everywhere displaced in order to block the schizophrenic escapes and place restraints on the flights. Uh, you joined uh early at all or even moments before i started you uh did get a chance to hear us um uh go through this whole thing and have this discussion around death um and apparently my significant misunderstanding of this section uh holland goes into this in his setup i would very much be open to uh someone else diving in and starting this conversation because i'm still halfway through what we were talking about because my challenge is that i haven't seen them make the leap that they're making in this paragraph and that holland talks about in this section where death moves from something that existed uh unique in the uh savage or despotic socius to something that is effused through every moment of our lives inside of capital now i'm not saying i don't agree with that It again intuitively makes sense to me but I'm having trouble making the leap inside of the text so uh, Alyosha did you want to sort of dive forward a little bit and talk about what we were talking about
2: I don't know if I'll be super insightful I can definitely start it out I I was just saying I think it was helpful for me in comparing the Holland uh, and the um, Deleuze because they're using all these terms as synonyms and not synonyms they keep changing the definitions in a sense but Basically, when they're talking about death instinct, they're talking about anti-production, as far as I can tell. And I think it's important to kind of see anti-production, you know, in, in relation to excess. You know, so when they're talking on a molecular and molar level, it's, it might be slightly different. But as far as like the socialist goes, it seems to me that whenever they've talked about how anti-production worked in these, you know, imaginary other societies, uh, it has to do with how to c- capture excess. From design and production, so as it, so as to not let it take over the entire associates.
0: Right, it was and a it was right a release there. valve. I think is the term right. we used quite a bit. The the feasts, uh, or the sacrifices, right. or whatever it may be, and with the despot, the same thing. Essentially, they would have grand feasts, uh, and they would have other things that sort of was that release valve for overblown production.
2: Yeah, but even in the sense of, uh, and I do think Holland says this, even in the sense of just like the despot's palace. You know, it's like it is a it is a waste of resources. It doesn't need to exist. It doesn't help survival. And besides an actual like power play or you know ideological thing of like showing people that this is an important place, there I think there's like an elemental thing there of like the excess needs to go somewhere. And if it's and if it's Serabat sword all around the despot, then that's where it's going to go. But that in this in the capitalist phase, you know, because it's production for production's sake and because there's no, you know, it it almost uses the, the, that what they would call, I guess, schizophrenic tendency or the, the, the strengths, if you want to look at it that way of like the body without organs, uh, it, there's nowhere for that excess to go. And anti-production becomes part of like the whole system itself, because tons and tons of waste is produced and excess is produced. And so it has, I, there, I constantly has to innovate ways of dealing with this, which makes it, I think, I think what they're saying is it's a more teetering and a more dangerous enterprise because it's not even like the threat of an execution from a despot or something for violating the, you know, whatever the codes are. It's because it's like the fragility of the entire economic and global system and the way it's set up. And and Holland in his text, whether it's right or not, he brings up what we were saying before the start, like, Keen, Keen, I don't know how you say it, Keynesian, 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 Keynesian. Ill, uh World War II, these different moments where there was mass reappropriations of, of waste and anti-production, like the way that that gets reappropriated, I
3: guess. Well, so,
0: that's, uh, that's but,
3: my- go ahead, Roger. Uh, yeah, but one thing on this, um, when they said debt enterprise is one of the principal and specific form of the absorption of surplus value in capitalism. So if we go back to Marx on this specific line, surplus value is the 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 amount of labor that passes into the surplus into production the good into producing the good? So the integration of the surplus, it's basically capitalism as theft. You know, it's a generalized theft. So this surplus value is the production of desire through labor, but since it's being uh, reappropriated or stolen by capitalists and in the capitalism, the capitalist system as a whole it doesn't produce something new. So with this surplus value, we can produce many, many things, you know, and two differences and try to have better forms of becoming and everything. But because it's being taken away by a system that actually preys on labor and on desire, that's where the debt, uh, the debt enterprise comes in. So that's that's that negating the possibilities of desire.
0: So one of the things I mentioned in chat, the the phrasing they use here, um, because I'm really trying to break down this paragraph quite a bit. I've been staring at it as I've been trying to drink my coffee. Death-carrying agency, the despotic signifier, but also how it brought about this agency's effusion effusion, in the full eminence of its own system, the full body having become that of capital money. Uh, One of the things they do go on, very uh long about is the written word and the concept of the despotic signifier the orders from on high uh that have their own sort of penalty of death and threat underneath them that the, the written word has that switch to being that of capital money also changes how that sort of again the written on high do this or die uh that carries over nicely into the concept of wage, wage slavery i don't think i'm crazy for saying such things but it's it feels like they're sort of pushing in that direction. I'm trying to find the direct lines between what Holland said and what is literally in the text, because uh, Holland has this habit, I don't know if anyone else is frustrated by it except me, of making statements but not saying, here is where these things come from in the text. And the statement feels like it matches overall, but it doesn't like say, here's why. And, uh, that's more what I'm interested in.
2: I think we'll also see in the coming paragraphs so this is connected to the idea of the difference in nature versus the difference in regimes because I think they'll talk a little bit about how ironically under these previous systems where there was like a valve to deal with anti-production and deal with that excess and the schizophrenizing tendency there's it's ironically almost like closer to the actual functioning of like the BWO than in this modern system which fully unleashes the codes but then ends up in their you know, the paranoid, sort of like deformed, artificial, oedipalized like moment. But I guess we'll, we'll, we'll come to that.
0: No, I, I, I like that. It, um, uh, the last thing is the last uh, sentence they have here absorbed, diffuse, imminent death is the condition formed by the signifier in capitalism, the empty locus that is everywhere displaced in order to block the schizophrenic escapes. I like uh, the terminology that they use there absorbed, diffuse, and imminent as a sort of opposition towards the death uh, they were talking about earlier in sections. So, uh, again, part of that sort of anti-production and production setup.
3: And, you know, if you want to take this and talk about art, for example, art is the possibility of actualizing desire into different manners. But the moment that you want to monetize your art or make money or being paid, you are being absorbed into capitalism. Your production actually serves the market. So that's the main problem. We're being like sucked in all the time. So any possibility of reaching out, of doing something different will be preyed on by this system, this death enterprise that they're saying.
4: So let me see if I understand Hmm. the difference between the death instinct and anti-production. Um, the difference is that anti-production is sort of related to the siphoning off of flows between desiring machines, right? You sort of restrict the flow between one or two machines and then redirect it into something else. Uh, Whereas the death instinct seems to be more tied to like activity, like waste where you have all of this food that is just thrown away at the grocery store, or you have, you know, a creative experimental piece of art that actualizes desire, but it is wasted because it doesn't fit into the capitalist enterprise. Am I understanding the distinction between the two decently
3: well enough? Um, I would just take this one point about waste. Uh, The food that is being wasted into the food industry is actually part of production. It is wasted. So the value of the foodstuff on the market uh, keeps going, so basically they're destroying. There's a part of destruction going to maintain the value of the goods that are produced, and also their exchange value. Okay, and
4: that's that's that sort of the death instinct that uh, inherent in capitalism, in imminent death that they're yeah. talking about. Because I because
3: see. because that food doesn't serve desire. It doesn't serve you know vitality. It doesn't serve life. It doesn't serve. Uh, you know, basic needs, it it actually serves the capitalist uh, regime of production, you know, it serves value. And that's, you know, that we produce food for value, not to feed people. Okay, I, I, I see. I
0: see. Well, I've, I've always understood anti-production, and we had this talk, but I think there's a very good chance that when we finish this book, we're going to go back and reread the first maybe entire chapter and just go piece by piece. But uh, anti-production, I've always understood as more or less Uh, that uh, moment of actual primal repression that happens really deep prior to the subjective uh, creation and that's where anti-production is that's the formation and sort of the dissolution and use of it whereas production ultimately does create the subject at least in some way have I been misunderstanding that
2: I mean, I think I think it's both, right? Like on a molecular level, anti-production is what allows desire. It's like the disjunctive phase, right? It's what allows des- desiring produ- um, connections to end and be redirected to make other connections. So it has to exist on some level. It can't be done away with. Like the the surface of the BWO can't be created if no, uh, you know, no, nothing dies. If no, there isn't a moment of death in every desiring connection that's made. Yep.
0: Right, uh, but and, and to to say again, anti-production. And I don't think necessarily anti-production is a negative, or that they're saying it as like it's it's a it's a bad thing overall. That there's always going to be anti-production. There has to be. It's more about that it is sort of created and dissolved in that process uh, prior to subjectivization, and that's that what, I would agree.
3: Yeah, because okay. yeah, it's a, it's a zero intensity. You know, it's the moment of inertia that actually, it's the it's the moment of complete stabilization. And from there, you can actually uh, find new horizons and open new horizons. But the, these horizons they depend on the closure of the system, you know. So it's always I, it it sucks to use the term like dialectics for this, but you're always like going from like zero to a hundred. So you, you you keep passing from diff- one one intensity to another. So to actually be able to Deploy force in the system. You need to deploy it on uh, the intensity that is already there. So, if the system is not, if it if it goes to zero, it allows force to come through. But if it's already full, you know, you cannot stabilize it.
0: All right, um, I do want to move on to the next paragraph.
1: Can I jump in before you do, please? I have I have a slightly different take. Hmm. So. I think it helps to keep in mind that there's a contrast going on in this paragraph, for instance, where they write, uh, more generally the death instinct celebrates the wedding of psychoanalysis and capitalism. Their engagement has been full of hesitation. And they, as, as I'm reading this section, uh, particularly this paragraph, they're working on like the juxtaposition the of psychoanalytic death drive in relation to capitalism, that coupling, and the way that that contrasts with sort of like, um, how they understand the death drive. Like there's more particularly anti-production, like we're saying. So there's almost a a sort of interplay happening here, sort of like syllogistically versus paralogistically. I think that's important because, um, so they, they open up the paragraph with Freud himself indeed spoke of the link between his so-called discovery of the death instinct and world war one, which remains the model of capitalist war, which is kind of funny there. But, uh, I don't think this is simply about waste. I think what they're talking about here, especially with the death drive, is this kind of despot signifier, or uh, to say it differently, like this this privilege signifier around which everything is organized. I think what they're talking about is that not so much waste per se, but production turned against itself. That is to say, like, well, why do we produce guns, right? It's um, in and of itself toward killing, right? Uh, more directly like i think when i think of world war one i think of all these things that are being produced um around basically as they're saying right here around the signifier of how to kill how to how to bring things to an end how to stop it and so if we walk that into like labor for instance like uh kind of like what roger was getting at like you're not working simply just to produce a surplus um your labor is now more directly part of you breaking, uh, part of the desiring machines breaking down on themselves. So there seems to be kind of a reversal happening here that I don't think is just about waste, but more about like um, this sort of like way that, uh, and, and they even seem to suggest it when they say like uh, everywhere emits is anti production with the productive forces, and the imminent reproduction of its own always widening limits. This seems to say to me that uh, like. The productive and the anti-productive are now like so closely coupled that they're they're constantly working um back on each other instead of like a little bit more syllogistically perhaps
4: so the production and anti-production working back on each other that's 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 a sort of schizoanalytic way of describing uh the processes of production as they exist in our material uh conditions in capitalism am i am i understanding you correctly because it seems to me that the whole bit about um like the production of guns production turning back on itself that would seem to fit in with uh the example of like waste of food that i gave earlier where yeah production of you know bread is so high that it destroys itself as it's producing itself
0: uh, I'm I'm hesitant. Yeah. I'm so I I I don't see anti-production as the same thing. I think as you guys and maybe this is uh, we should have a large sort of two-hour chat about what anti-production actually is. But to me, anti-production isn't some sort of uh, literal opposition to production as things are produced. Uh, Production is desire, is the flows, is a na- natural positive force, the passions of everything. Desiring production creates that. Through the process of this, anti-production is also developed, which is the repression of that primal uh, desire, passion. that's necessary. Otherwise, we have no, what do we do? Literally, we want to do everything. That needs to be shaped. We have to have some level of repression that happens. It's their examples that they give commonly at a societal level are the academia, our government regulations, uh, the state, things like that that generally rec- you know regulate how we should behave. Uh, so we don't just you know constantly just do whatever. Repression isn't necessarily a bad thing. Anti-production isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's stuff that has to happen. It's the societal sort of pressures that cause us to have very specific subjectivizations and our subject comes out of the interaction of all of these things. The, what you're talking about is down the line of production when we create bread, uh, as we go through that process, there's a shit ton of waste. Uh, whether it's through shipping, whether it's through whatever, or we just make too much bread and we end up throwing a ton out. That's excess production. I don't know if I would say that's necessarily anti-production.
2: But I think it's it's two things, uh, Brooks, because it's sort of like, A, I think you're right on a molecular level, but also they themselves bring up World War I here. So it's they're clearly also talking about the molecular level. And I think it's both, waste is like the basic level, but it's what Roger was saying about it. It's like literally people being paid to keep uh, grain that's rotting in silos, because if we were to release it, then that would like mess up the value of corn and stuff like that. And I think you could even go further. And point out, like, kind of what Roger was saying. You could even see it in a Marxian sense in in alienation itself. Like, in the supposedly free labor, the codes have been undone. You have this person who can freely associate with any company and work for whoever they want. Like, even in an eight hour workday, as it was eventually codified, everyone who's worked knows that you don't actually, like, for every one hour of labor that you do, you often have like three hours of stuff that isn't labor. And that's not to say that you're lazy. I mean, in the sense that this whole massive teetering system to create the free associating flows of workers that can go anywhere they want and be exploited in all these millions of different subtle ways. It has to create it. It like literally it's not even just the waste. It literally has to create like if I have to go to an office and be there for eight hours, even though I could do my job in two, I I literally have to not work as much as I work. And so it's like elementally in the system itself that the anti-production becomes part of everything that we do. That's kind of how I'm seeing that.
4: And then, okay, so this, and then this dovetails with the whole psychoanalytic point that they make about lack that uh, Roger put in the chat about where, like, we know, what is the quote from the book? Uh, Okay, it's from page 28. Uh, Lack is created, planned, and organized through social production, which is, you know, lack is a psychoanalytic term, which speaks to the, you know, primal repression that Brooks brings up. And it's, you know, they're they're, uh, relating it to the sort of economic term like social production.
0: But lack, it, so they're saying here, uh, lack is created through social production. Social machines only exist at the molar level. So is this the thing where we're really talking about uh, really two types of anti-production? One that is essentially lack at the molar level, but uh, repression at the molecular.
4: I think I'd be careful at like making it two different types, but right? Maybe no, not. no, the it's it's regimes, regimes, regimes.
0: Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to you know fully. You know territorialize them and separate them into different fenced off things but more just generally because as i'm seeing as i because i've been uh control effing my way through the pdf and as i'm doing that i'm seeing how they're talking about anti-production they do seem to refer to uh lack uh the the spaces that capital needs to create for itself um, the empty spaces is something that happens at the molar level. That's not a molecular thing. Whereas when they're talking about anti-production at the molecular, they're talking about straight up the, the repression we've instilled upon ourselves at the pre-subjective level. I mean, they're pretty clear.
3: Yes, but, you know, and we can. That's what I, I wrote earlier about the different industries. You know, like, do you have an industry of social services? Uh, industry of Uh, physical health or mental health we are creating you know those industries are creating uh, a certain void saying oh you know we need to work to actually uh, fill these this void so it it passes production into filling this void instead of you know actually helping people out so it 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 helps people out but in a certain way that it uh, creates a pattern Uh, the same way that psychoanalysis works when it autopilize you. It says, okay, we found your problem, now let's work on it. So capitalism f- problematizes certain things by creating a void, creating a hole, and it gives you a shovel, and it's like, okay, with your life, you need to like fill that hole. So that's the whole process of capitalism. That's how it works into delusion thought. Because it, it becomes like a... It's
0: well, that, a political, that's like, that's the, last, the last sentence of the paragraph. Uh, the empty locus that is everywhere displaced in order to block schizophrenic escapes. The 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 thing that is always sitting there, that death drive, that that lack.
2: I think we should move on, but I was just gonna say the only the only thing I would I don't think it's that lack is produced on the molar level and not on the molecular level. We're just talking about the BWO on both levels and how they look. Like you can't not even in their permanent revolution that they end up with after all this, there's not not a BWO. It always happens. It's just how is it directed so that the surface is still created, design production is still appropriated, and in a way miraculated, and like lack and vacuoles are made. It's just can you counteract that process on a molecular level? Yes or no? That's the question. And on a molar level, this is kind of how it happens on a mass scale. But I don't think it's that lack only happens on a molar.
3: Yes, I would agree with this. As a molecular level can actually reproduce uh, the the function of lack, saying that you know the the, the molecular movements they can move um, with with this idea of lack, you know, because they are pretty being produced by the molar at the same time. So I think I think we should be careful into idealizing the molecular level. Uh, I. Th- because I think that's where we're, we're, what we're starting to do, as saying, oh, the molar is really bad, bad, and the molecular is a good, pure thing. There's nothing pure. There's, you know, it's just imminent forces uh, acting and counteracting one another.
0: Oh, that would be, I think, a larger discussion. I am going to continue to read that. Um, the only modern myth is the myth of zombies. Mortified schizos, good for work, brought back to reason. In this sense, the primitive and the barbarian, with their ways of coding death, are children in comparison to modern man and his axiomatic. So many unemployed are needed, so many deaths, the Algerian war doesn't kill more people than weekend automobile accidents, planned death in Bengal, etc. Let's break that apart at the end of this. Modern man raves to a far greater extent. His delirium is a switchboard with 13 telephones. He gives his orders to the world. He doesn't care for the ladies. He is brave, too. He is decorated like crazy. In man's game of chance, the death instinct, the silent instinct, is decidedly well placed, perhaps next to egoism. It takes the place of zero in roulette. The house always wins, so too does death. The law of large numbers works for death. It is now or never that we must take up a problem we had left hanging. Once it is said that capitalism works on the basis of decoded flows as such, how is it that it is inf- how is it that it is infinitely further removed from desiring production than were the primitive or even the barbarian systems, which nonetheless code and overcode the flows? Once it is said that desiring production is itself a decoded and deterritorialized production. How do we explain that capitalism, with its axiomatic, its statistics, performs an infinitely vaster repression of this production than do the preceding regimes, which nonetheless did not lack the necessary repressive means? We have seen that the molar statistical aggregates of social production were in a variable relationship of affinity with the molecular formations of desiring production what must be explained is that the capitalist aggregate is the least of phenol at the very moment it decodes and deterritorializes with all its might so this go back to the moment that i was just discussing
3: prior the intertwining the constant intertwining between the molar and the molecular they they cannot be separated and you know they're they're being produced at the same time and they're part of
0: this overall game at all times I don't think I disagree with any of that. Uh, for me, the the question is not whether or not the molar is something that's evil or we need to get rid of or any of that. Obviously, that's silly. Um, how I'm looking at it, uh, and I would say this actually talks a little bit towards this, is the idea that uh, the molar seems to be creating repression for the molecular, which means that the molecular is in service of the molar, which feels like it ought to be the other way around
3: yeah but the the, the molar is uh, you know it's uh, when they say uh, what's the english version some statistic cuz i'm reading from the french at the same time but this it's an aggregate of points at a statistical level you know it's it's just that the the, the, the this aggregation of points creates a force of gravity that the molecular is being attracted to or being pushed towards um so the molecular is always, you know, this these electrons that are kind of free-floating, going around this smaller circle, but have, at all moment, a possibility of detaching themselves. But they don't necessarily detach themselves, and their force is being given by the molar aggregate at the same time. Sorry for the, the, the physics reference to this, but I think it's a good image to add in mind.
2: No, I think that's actually really fitting, because we'll see in the coming paragraph, when again, when they talk about difference in nature and regimes, like, to me, I started thinking about, like, you know, particles and waves, which they themselves bring up in quantum mechanics. Like, a lot of this is, we have to always remember, we're not necessarily talking about opposing things, but just, there's, like, these limit points at which the one is the other, or is, like, you know, is starting to incarnate the other. I'll try and find some quotes, but I think the those examples can are, are not irrelevant, so
3: kudos yeah and that's the thing you know in gravity there's positive and negative energy and there's inertia uh i don't remember all the all those terms because you know i'm in the social sciences and i don't remember most of them but uh, um, the force of attraction and all and they all work together you know there's no like bad force and good force it's not because it's negative that it's a bad force it's just like the play of forces
0: within the system so then i'll ask uh they open this paragraph uh, with actually, I think if I want to call back to, I think it was Muskie uh, who made the comment of, uh, "There's always homeless needed for people to have homes." This sort of uh, weird discourse that capitalism has it feels like it opens up there. So many unemployed are needed. So many deaths. Our Algerian war doesn't kill more people than weekend automobile accidents. Mm-hmm land death in bengal the second to last one there struck me as we were reading it um as something i've heard uh, people i know say about for example covid um the the way that people code death and how they treat it and they talk about it is that the essentially what we're talking about in this opening here because they kind of ramble for that parentheses and i uh, under yeah
1: um i think you have a, an interesting point there because like in World Wars, um, we had the mega death, right? Which was like a, a way of quantifying death. So as to like, um, I think it was, like, was it, a thousand deaths or something where probably a million now that I think about it. Um, and, and the idea is, well, okay. So like now we have a new unit, right? So many people are dying. We need like a larger unit. So we don't have to keep dealing with this. It's the same thing as like a, on a financial statement where you see like, Five, and then in parentheses referring to 5 million uh-huh. it's the same basic ploy so like with COVID or like unemployment I think you're right because we've reached a point with COVID where um, and I think you're seeing this in states where like you know uh, like Michigan or uh, Washington where so many things are open right now but so many things are forced to close like the way things are being dealt with in, in terms of the ratio to be sort of like utilitarian about it, um, that interplay, like there is a balancing act that has to happen,
0: right? And so, uh, and and, and it turns so this, many deaths. Yeah, well, this this opening is uh, really interesting phrasing. This whole paragraph uh, is really excellent at I think making a handful of points. Uh, the opening one for me that they're going into is basically uh, with, of course, the co- death was coded in primitive and barbarian times. But that was child's play in comparison to the axiomatics that we have in capital, where we say things like, no, we just need that many unemployed, it's necessary, which you will hear actively said on Fox Business. Uh, Oh yeah, no, the Iraq war isn't killing a ton of people, we've lost less soldiers there per day than any war in history. Technically true. Uh, The axiomatic, the way that we talk about death inside of all of this, and that second Thing, the, the second quote uh, which someone would look up footnote 35 for me please um modern man raves to a far greater extent at just making fun of how much we sort of have that ridiculously decoded and stupefied axiomatic that allows us to deal with death in such a casual simple 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 way
2: i i do i was just saying in the chat it makes me think about um a mil- this military podcast thing I've been listening to recently, kind of for research, weirdly. It's like these kind of pseudo-progressive people who have been disillusioned with the military slightly. But anyway, we could debate the politics another time. One of the things they talk about is uh, the way that the war is in Afghanistan. Afghanistan specifically is fought. And it's really interesting because, like, obviously the rhetoric in our experience is always about, you know, defeating the enemy whatever. But, like, they kind of explain how the actual conditions, the way it is fought... The main number one priority is to minimize deaths of uh, military servicemen, not to win the war. And, you know, if it was a war to defeat the enemy or to, you know, occupy or colonize Afghanistan, it would look a lot different. And I don't think that's opposed. I think that actually works with what they're saying here, because it's sort of like it seems like they're evoking this idea of like the mass, the the, the whole body without organs, like the, the mass Excel spreadsheet that is capital in the world system there's like little adjustments you know it's death is this it's almost like the adorno thing about Auschwitz like it's this number you just kind of move things around here and there oh, 6 million people over here in the trains and then we just adjust this over here it's like it's it becomes almost this banal thing despite the har- horrificness of it
0: yes well and i i kind of like how the paragraph ended um what must be explained is the capitalist aggregate in the least Phenol. At the very moment it decodes and deterritorializes with all its might. In the discussion of the molar aggregates and their relationship with desiring production, feels like they almost wrote that saying. Brooks, stop fucking around. Don't ha- just listen to Roger. We're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> fuck you, Brooks. It's, it's, I, I just was reading that like, ah, oh, fuck. Of course, it's on the next page. They just tell me to shut up because um, they're they're just out. Sometimes their paragraph in writing is so, so, so good. This is now. Any last comments on this? Um, uh, the axiomatic is yeah. actually really simple, Angus. Uh, it, it may take a little bit more discussion, but the idea of an axiomatic is the things we tell ourselves uh, are just reality of life. Capitalism has axiomatics all the time, uh, and you may not have them. You have a bunch. You don't know it. But uh, you've for sure seen them in conservative media, which is the easiest place in the world. Watch Newsmax for an hour and you will see people literally say, uh, the in- economy and engine needs people to go back to work, even if they die, that's the price we pay. That axiomatic, for example, all the way down to the very simple one, which is um, well, it's you know if, if you don't uh, have a productive job, you deserve to die in the street." which is an insane thing to say, but that is actually something believe these are Mm -hmm. axiomatics at a a basic level throughout capital
3: yeah and uh you know if i want to give an example of covid uh i'm in the process of writing an article right now on the uh, politics of triage the protocol of triage the triage is something that we do in 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 the hospitals all the time you know it's like a evaluating people as they come in and you know um Giving them the correct uh, treatment or the correct uh, allocating the correct resources, but in COVID uh, triage changes a little bit because it's it's crisis triage and crisis triage is to say, okay, we're going to choose the people that we're going to give services to. So there's a whole process of exclusion and death creating into the process of triage because we're planning uh, we we're, uh, we're planning death as it comes in. In in the sense that, uh, for example, in Quebec, but also in the U.S., uh, people with disabilities, mental disabilities, cognitive disabilities, people with Parkinson, people who are using respirators already, they are being denied services, and that that created a huge thing in the U.S. in uh, May, I think, and in Quebec. Like it was over the summer, so like you know, social groups are opposing this model of utilitarian thinking, because their their utilitarian thinking is saying, you know, we need to rationalize for the greater good. So we need to save as much people as we can by sacrificing a part of them. So this politics of life saving triage is linked to its opposite that it contains within itself, which which is a necropolitic or a politic in the sense that it actually plans death, who will be sacrificed. So when we're talking about this death assemblage, that's, that's just another example that actually is not about war or whatever, but it's common sacrificing of,
0: you know, surplus people. And I just want to respond to Alyosha. I... I agree generally that uh, the axiomatics are beyond verbal. They're not just things we literally say out loud. It's just the easiest examples I can give because it's difficult for me to communicate pre-conscious thoughts over a podcast. I know, weird. I'll get working on that. Um But I think the other side of it is that we're talking about um, it, the... The underlying repressions that anti—and again, this is what anti-production ultimately is. Actually, anti-production, in my mind, stems from axiomatics that we've integrated at a pre-subjective level. Uh, Oedipus, for example, is one of those. The uh, axiomatic of where my desires come from, how they're intended to be shaped—it's done pre-subjective level that represses my desiring machine, as thought. So that's—we'll we'll get through to that. Uh, anything last on this paragraph? I'm trying not to rabbit hole. We've only gone two paragraphs. And it's-
1: just wanted to say with that too, though, it's important to keep in mind that like with death is like this organizing factors. Like in Roger's example, you'll see businesses also become very creative here. So like for instance, gap insurance will become, you know, you'll see uh, more capital move there, for instance. Um, so this, this is part of the, this, um, the delirium of it is there's also like, it's not just about how people are dying here. It's also about like how these exclusions actually um produce new things within that excluded
0: territory and as i as I read this uh, the first time this paragraph uh, when he he's got the quote, and again, I want to know what it's from thirty five um it just feels like something you'd almost say on like an old timey radio broadcast he gives those orders to the world he doesn't care for the ladies, he is brave too, like it's the way that they used to talk about soldiers, and it feels like that's a little bit of their commentary on World War I and how all these guys came back from the wars with all these medals. The thought.
1: <sighs> yeah, because the, they're valorized by death,
0: right? Yes. The modern, and we, and we romanticize warriors throughout history. I know Alyosha and I were having a discussion about uh, Ghost of Tsushima and the valorization of the samurai versus very much, just feels like maybe appropriate example.
2: Shall we continue? I think you're right, because if we want to make it to the end, we should... I
0: know, and I know. Um, This one's a long paragraph. Uh, For everyone else, does this go beyond this page? I'm not missing a weird break.
1: Yes, that's correct. It's about a page and a half.
0: All right. The answer is the death instinct. If we call instinct, in general, the conditions of life that are historically and socially determined by the relations of production and anti-production system... We know that molar social production and molecular desiring production must be evaluated both from the viewpoint of their identity in nature and from the viewpoint of their difference in regime. But it could be that these two aspects, nature and regime, are in a sense potential and only actualized, and actualized only in inverse proportion, which means that where the regimes are the closest, the identity in nature is on the contrary at its minimum." And where the identity in nature appears to be at its maximum, the regimes differ to the highest degree. If we examine the primitive or the barbarian constellations, we see that the subjective essence of desire as production is referred to large objects, to the territorial or the despotic body, which act as natural or divine preconditions, and thus ensure the coding or the overcoding of the flows of desire by introducing them into systems of representation, that are themselves objective. Hence, it can be said that the identity in nature between the two productions is completely hidden there, as much by the difference between the objective socius and the subjective full body of desiring production, as by the difference between the qualified codes and overcodings of social production and the chains of decoding or of deterritorialization belonging to desiring production and by the entire repressive apparatus represented in the savage prohibitions, the barbarian law, and the rights of anti-production. And yet, the difference in regime, far from being accentuated and deepened, is on the contrary reduced to a minimum. Because desiring production as an absolute limit remains an exterior limit, or else stays unoccupied as an internalized and displaced limit, with the result that the machines of desire operate on this side of their limit within the framework of the socius and its codes. That is why the primitive codes and even the despotic overcodings testify to a polyvocity that functionally draws them nearer to a chain of decoding of desire. The parts of the desiring machine function in the very workings of the social machine. The flows of desire enter and exit through the codes that continue, however, to inform the model and experience of death that are elaborated in the unity of the socio-desiring apparatus. And it is even less a question of the death instinct to the extent that the model and the experience are better coded in a circuit that never stops grafting the desiring machines onto the social machines and implanting the social machine in the desiring machines. Death comes all the more from without, as it is coded from within. This is especially true of the system of cruelty, where death is inscribed in the primitive mechanism of surplus value, as well as in the movement of the finite blocks of debt. But even in the system of despotic terror, where debt becomes infinite and where death experiences an elevation that tends to make of it a latent instinct, there nonetheless subsists a model in the overcoating law and an experience for the overcoated subjects at the same time as anti-production remains separate as the share owing to the overlord. Yikes. This is a few things in there. Uh, it's a little bit of a wordy paragraph. Um, there, To me, there is actually a, a good amount of, I, I don't wanna say clarity because I have questions, but the, the writing is significantly more clear and feels ordered um, in this paragraph. So I actually think going through it in order might do us a good service. There is only one point. Shut up, Rod. There is one in the multiple. We are a multiplicity of points inside of a paragraph. Jackass. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's, I, I think there is ultimately one point, but I think their, their way of getting there is really interesting because they, they do outright say we know molar production and molecular desiring production must be evaluated from the viewpoint of their identity and nature and from their viewpoint in the difference of regime. Uh, Ultimately, they come back around to saying that they're all part of one single code and one single chain. And uh, ultimately, the, that can be traced back. And uh, this is where my questions start, because okay, I'm thinking I, through it. I,
2: was just say, I really like this thing that I keep citing about the, 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 where the regimes are the closest, the identity and na- nature is on the contrary at its minimum. And where the identity and nature appears to be at its maximum, the regimes differ to the highest degree. Uh, sort of the way I was thinking about this was um, if you think about even what they're talking about, labor and libido, you know, and the the desire and labor value, like the way that in the regime of how these things are perceived in our world, they are seen as completely different and having nothing to do with each other. And psychoanalysis would have it that, you know, the one is primary and the other is tangential at best, whereas their identity and nature is as almost to, they're almost the same thing, essentially, is what the whole book is about. And then with the other example, I thought about something like, like even gender might be a good example. I'm just throwing that out there, but of like where the regimes in and, and our regime of, like, of society, of how things are sort of hegemonically perceived, you're like, oh yeah, man, woman, there you go. Makes sense. Two different genders. Or, Here's two women. They're the same. It's the same thing. And whereas if you look at like the way DNG and even others have expanded on their discussion of the N plus you know, infinity genders, it's like, well, the, these things don't are, have, have actually a completely different reality in, in nature, so called, but in but have appear to have a commonality in this, you know, perceptive regime. So yeah, I think I think this is a really helpful way of thinking about maybe mm-hmm. oedipalized representation versus what D and G are trying
3: to do. I think the this example of you know the spectrum of gender is really good in the sense that, you know, gender, you, me, or whatever else into this group were kind of all the same, you know, in nature, our biological functioning and stuff. It's you know, it's there's not much differences, but the way we code and decode things, we are creating those differences into a regimen of signs and a regimen of in you know, a semiotic regimen. And by Placing gender, for example, into a binary, like a clear-cut binary of male and women, we are, you know, disfiguring the the, the the bodies and codifying the bodies into those binaries. Uh, gender-critical studies and, you know, the new social movements are making gender a spectrum. And then, you know, the body is not locked, but can actually move from one point to the other into that system. But the body always remains the same. So, And that's the thing, you know, like the more, um, the closest the things are in nature, the more clear cut they're going to be established within a model or uh, a form of understanding into a regimen.
4: I'm wondering if we can kind of uh, clarify the causal, like, so they make this assertion at the beginning of the paragraph that, you know, well, maybe the reason that capitalism is so cruel at repressing desiring production is that, you know, as the desiring production or as, uh, what is it, what do they say, from a molecular and from a uh, social viewpoint, as they become more similar in nature, right, as the identity between these two things becomes closer, uh, the regime becomes like uh, more disparate. Uh, do they explain, like, why that happens? And if so, can we can we make it clearer?
2: Can you just restate that, Muskie? Sorry.
4: Yeah, no worries. I'm just wondering, like, so, like, what's the reason that as molecular desiring production and social production appear to look more similar to one another, uh, that the regime, the difference of power between them becomes greater?
2: I think you might have said it because the way I saw it was like the more when you're talking about the way they look that's already on the regime so if if they're starting to look according to this like fake maxim that they're creating, the more that they look like one another the the less they'll be identical in their actual nature as things I guess or maybe I'm misunderstanding
4: I just mean that like st- at the, what is the let me get the quote. It, but it could be that these two aspects, nature and regime, are in a sense potential and are actualized only in inverse proportion, which means that where the regimes are the closest, the identity in nature is on the contrary at its minimum. And where the identity in nature appears to be at its maximum, the regimes differ to the highest degree. So they like posit that at the beginning of the paragraph. And then it seems like the rest of the paragraph is just them going through and reasserting that by looking at the, you know, what they call the uh, primitive – the primitive codes and the despotic codes but I'm wondering if they explain you know, why uh, that should be the case uh, if, if that makes sense
2: I don't know if I have a full answer for you but I do think where it would be is in the second half of this paragraph when when they're explaining why it is that the so-called primitive and despotic societies I don't know how you pluralize that how they ironically would be more similar to the like so-called like in natural functioning or the the actual like process of decoding, even though they had a fixed way of sort of like reterritorializing and dealing with the like schizophrenizing tendencies. Because they're, I think they're saying uh, where the, the difference in regime, far from being accentuated and deep, and is reached a minimum. Because desire production as an absolute limit remains an exterior limit or stays unoccupied as an internalized and displaced limit. Like, from there on, maybe we can look at that section, because it seems like that's where they're spelling it out.
4: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think it is It is there in the second part of the paragraph, but I'm having a hard time understanding what they mean.
0: Well, so, uh, I'll take a stab, because uh, how I read this is that um, they're talking about desiring production, which is the occurrence of the, uh, let's say, individual, the subject, whatever you want to call it, it's me. i I'm desiring production, or the the thing is has an absolute limit to that subject. They they always do wherever they happen to be within it. As uh, with instead with social social uh, desiring machines, the the social machines which are the larger sort of molar representation, it's always a perceived limit. With desiring machines, it's actually always an absolute limit uh, because that exists like essentially for me as a subject. Because they've talked about this before more than a few times. Maybe when my mic doesn't work, or it was so insanely stupid.
4: <laughs> uh, I heard you. I was just trying to. Un- I was just trying to understand it, and I was looking back at the paragraph and thinking about it.
2: Yeah, same. We're just. We're just thinking. <laughs>
0: Uh, the result that the machines of desire operate on this side of their limit within the framework of the socius and its codes, always on the side essentially of the subject, as the subject moves around, or the schizo, or the nomadic, whatever, around on the body without organs. As we move, that's the the BWO has some sort of perceived non-absolute limit, whereas I actually have an absolute limit. Uh, it feels like a lot of what they're talking about here is the is the place that the three syntheses can take place. Uh, how they take in, how they have those sort of edges and they deal with. If we think about me and my tendrils of desiring machines that are always out there looking for connections, trying to find connections, they don't go on infinitely. They have an absolute limit that is the outside of sort of my subjectivity. At some point, they connect in via the molecular chain to the larger social machines. The larger social machines are also connecting to other desiring machine subjects, or empty, empty subjects possible. In all of those, as they say, it could be empty as well. But it's uh, all these desiring machines are sort of interconnected with the social machines. That's the sort of limit that they're talking about. Is is how I've sort of seen it.
2: Okay, that makes is it, sense. Is it that any time an absolute limit is actually because like the, the, what they're describing here when they say this side of the limit, it's like in in a, a any time you have an absolute limit. Whereas capital is always, like, superseding and then displacing that limit continuously outwards, as they say it. Like, whenever you have an absolute limit like that, that is actually sort of treated as an exteriority, as an outside, that's not interiorized, I don't know how you'd say that, like it is under capital, then, like, the nature of that thing will always be, it it will be this inverse proportional thing, like, where... It will, it will appear like something like ritual sacrifice and these jubilees and these things will, they will appear as though it's like the complete opposite of, uh, you know, the unleashing codes and the BWO like freely roaming and being a nomadic subject.
0: Yeah. But uh, well, and again, yeah. We're, we're talking effectively about almost the perception level of the subject who's experiencing the social machine that's taking place in front of him. Like it's I it it's a really weird long worded way of saying like, uh yes, I'm saying yes, and the the line that I think uh, speaks to it when they say uh, uh. That is why primitive codes and even despotic overcodings testify to a polyvosity that functionally draws them nearer to a chain of decoding of desire. The parts of the desiring machine function in the very workings of the social machines. The flows of desire enter and exit through codes that continue, however, to inform the model and experience of death that are elaborated in the unity of the socio-designing apparatus. That's the the larger sort of eventized thing that's happening that all of us are connected to. Uh, And it is even less a question of the death instinct to the extent that the model and the experience are better coded in a circuit that never stops grafting the desiring machines onto the social machine and implanting the social machine inside the desiring machines. Thing that they've been going over and over of these molar ideas these molar investments that ultimately control us uh, from within the desiring machine sort of usurp and come from us from above and it feels like that's what they're saying towards the end of this paragraph that actually these uh, social machines implant that essence of the death drive back within the desiring machine sort of come up from underneath and death comes all the more from without as it is coded from within. It's especially true of systems of cruelty where death is inscribed in the primitive mechanisms of surplus value as well as in the movement of the finite blocks of death. Uh, finite blocks of of, of debt. Uh, well, actually, you know what? Death would work there. That was a wonderful Freudian slip. That actually, Yes, misusing and abusing flows in this the the thing i like at the, the ending because it comes back to the thing i think i was asking Alyosha before we started uh how how does death work through the previous uh sociuses, socii, socii uh, but even in the system of despotic terror where debt becomes infinite and where death experiences an elevation that tends to make of it a latent instinct there nonetheless subsists a model in the overcoding law an experience for the overcoated subjects at the same time as an anti-production remains separate as the share owing to the overlord, the the larger so- socius.
2: The way I formulated in my head, I don't know, I don't know. Thing, but it helped me is this is just restating it differently that whenever there's an absolute limit that is treated actually as an exteriority, it appears to have, there appears to be this massive gap in terms of the regime of perception of what's happening but in reality in D&G's kind of arguments and framework it is a more correct use of the flows and the synthesis in in terms of the natural like the Bergsonian sense if you're following the natural articulations the way the flows should and want to go in a sense even though I know that's anthropomorphic whereas in capital like it always just wherever the absolute limit is constantly displaced and becomes like an interiority in the way it does under like an Oedipal Oedipalized subject then the regimes appear to be identical, in fact, because you think my desire is the society's desire. This is normal. This is what everyone wants. I, sh- I want to work. I should work myself to death. All the axioms that we've been talking about. Whereas in reality, you know, that that difference in nature couldn't
3: be wider. You know, that's how I'm thinking of it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, this exterior limit, uh, when we were talking earlier about... Uh the molar as an aggregation of points, if the points they start moving towards this exterior limit, you know, the molar <laughs> aggregation of point is moving as well. So when it comes down to social movements, for example, contesting this, this exterior limit and going over the threshold by pushing this way society follows, you know, and it needs to reproduce itself there. So by moving uh, the points towards the limit exterior or the exterior limit it actually transforms society from inside so the molar is following you know the molecular movement at the same time so there's never there's never going to be an absolute limit because there's always going to be something to reconfigure to uh Reproduce or produce something new, and there's always possibility. So, it, there's always an horizon, you know. There, it's that we're never going to hit the wall. And even if we hit the wall, there's going to be an horizon arising um, anyway. And society will need to encompass or re, uh, reintegrate these uh, movements so it can actually continue to reproduce.
4: Okay, I think I'm getting the. Um... I think I'm getting the the gist of, of, of what of what's going on here. Um, I'm, maybe we want to move on to the next paragraph because it seems like they're going to describe capitalism in that one.
0: That's fair. Um, I'll do just that. Things are very different in capitalism. Oh see, look, they are about to describe capitalism precisely because the flows of capital are decoded and deterritorialized flows, precisely because the subjective essence of production is revealed in capitalism. Precisely because the limit becomes internal to capitalism, which continually reproduces it and also continually occupies it as an internalized and displaced limit. Precisely for these reasons, the identity in nature must appear for itself between social production and desiring production. But in its turn, this identity in nature, far from favoring an affinity in regime between the two modes of production, increases the difference in regime in a catastrophic fashion and assembles an apparatus of repression, the mere idea of which neither savagery nor barbarism could provide us. This is because, on the basis of a general collapse of the large objectities, the decoded and deterritorialized flows of capitalism are not recaptured or co-opted, but directly apprehended in a codeless axiomatic that consigns them to the universe of subjective representation. Now this universe has, as its function, the splitting of the subjective essence, the identity in nature, into two functions, that of abstract labor alienated in private property that reproduces the ever wider interior limits, and that of abstract desire alienated in the privatized family that displays the ever narrower internalized limits. The double alienation, labor desire, is constantly increasing and deepening the difference in regime at the heart of the identity in nature. At the same time that death is decoded, it loses its relationship with a model and an experience, and becomes an instinct, that is, it effuses in the imminent system where each act of production is inextricably linked to the process of anti-production at capital. There, where the codes are undone, the death instinct lays hold, The repressive apparatus and begins to direct the circulation of the libido, a mortuary axiomatic. One might then believe in liberated desires, but ones that, like cadavers, feed on images. Death is not desired, but what is desired is dead, already dead, images. Everything labors in depth, death. Everything wishes for death. In truth, capitalism has nothing to co-opt, Or rather its powers of co-option, coexist more often than not with what is to be co-opted and even anticipated. How many revolutionary groups as such are already in place for a co-option that will be carried out only in the future and form an apparatus for the absorption of a surplus value not even produced yet, which gives them precisely an apparent revolutionary position? In a world such as this, There is no living desire that could not of itself cause the system to explode or that would not make the system dissolve at one end where everything would end up following behind and being swallowed up a question of regime. This is so great. It's a phenomenal pair. Phenomenal altogether really well spells out answers. Actually a lot of the stuff we were discussing earlier, but I think it only fee fair that we actually go through it. All right. Uh, That opening precisely because the flows of capital precisely. Um, and it ends with, uh, the identity, uh, precisely for these reasons, identity and nature must appear for itself between social production and desiring production. Uh, their reference here is to the creation of the subject.
3: Yes, it, within capitalism. You within know, within capital. capital, correct, yes. No, they're, that, they're being that, very that, particular. Yeah, yeah, so that's, you know, we're making a break here between the previous historical uh, regimes to the, the regimes that are under capitalism. So this is something we need to take into account. There's a difference in in ontology there.
0: Uh, Also very significant for everything else in this book, and actually everything since. um, This is the creation of subjectivity and capitalism happens uh, where social production and desiring production uh, meet.
4: So If I'm understanding what the uh, sort of causal mechanism for this phenomenon of capitalism being the most repressive um, form of society correctly, if I'm understanding it correctly, um, it's because capitalism has this insidious ability to, with the axiomatic, consign everything to these subjective images and like, get in people's heads that way and restrict their ability to escape that way?
0: <laughs> um, I'll, I'll take a crack at that. There's two parts of this to focus on. One is uh, the thing that, that people desire in capitalism isn't the same thing uh, the subjects desire because the creation of the subject exists sort of on the edge of the social machines what the what we're looking for what is desired isn't the things that were desired once upon a time perhaps uh whatever it may be think of it but we can't because the issue is in capital all we see are images so when i say i want uh a house with a white picket fence uh that that is actually the thing that i'm desi- i'm not desiring the reality behind that, which really is about having a happy family, having a security, having no i, I, I want I desire the image i I'm, I'm after that because those are the things that the social machines uh, sort of want and sit at
3: and by and, desiring and, this image you're desiring normalization
4: okay and, and 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 so that process of being driven to desire a white picket fence, not for the I guess, material reality of the happy family or whatever that might be behind that image, uh, that sort of process of being made to desire the image of having that house is a interiorized limit of desire that is constantly displaced. And, okay.
0: Yes? Yes, yes, I think so. It's displaced
2: and it's be- internalized, right? That's yes. I think it's like in a, maybe because I have the the next Foucault thing on my mind, but I was reading the text they're going to read later. And there's there's something that's almost, you could see it almost like the Foucauldian disciplinary or biopolitical subject or whatever version of that. Like the, the limit becomes internalized to the point of like, uh, you know, that's where desire becomes lack. It's the thing that can never, ever be achieved. Like I was thinking as somebody who goes to NA myself, like the whole like idea of modern drug addiction, like I don't think it's that people never got addicted to drugs they didn't have addictive properties but it's the difference between you know like rituals that were built around drug use in particular communities for different purposes for like coming of age and like you know this this is the kind of excess you know the un- unleashing those desires in like a controlled way mescaline ceremonies and shit like that versus like the experience of drug addiction as a product en masse as a society as like a public issue it's like two different phases you know
0: i i do want to say uh, one of the questions i have is one specific thing Muskie said uh is i want to sort of I not i don't know take issue with but um the strength of capitalism it feels like they're saying almost the opposite here and i know this is probably semantics uh but a lot of this uh as they've been talking about is essentially about how they're we're in this exceptionally fragile system and the internalization is that awareness of how fragile it is and how, if at any time, we didn't integrate these images or these things, everything would slowly begin eating and dissolving into it. Uh, the this, this, this sentence ends, uh, with this paragraph. In a world such as this, there is no living desire that could not of itself cause the system to explode, uh, or that would not make the system dissolve at one end where everything would end up following behind. And that's why we need the dead desire's images why that's all we can have. Living desires, which in the delusian sense tend to be that of ob- uh, subjects that are becoming. Uh, and the wasp is, for example. Uh, we have to have dead images, not becoming static, dead, fragile sort of husks of what things are or it all collapses. Mm.
4: Okay, that makes sense. But I would push back on your point on uh, your pushback to my pushback, and be like, "Yeah, the reason we can't have any uh, uh, living desire is because you know, if you if you start, if you go out and you start organizing your workplace, you are you are instantly crushed by the material regimes where you're fired and you're kicked out of your house and you're uh, you're uh, made
3: dead." <laughs> or at the same time, when they say that the revolutionary force are already on the ground, is the contestation of the work. Place without contesting the, the machine that actually produces desire within the workplace will just reproduce the workplace into a new way. You know, we can make the workplace more inclusive, but it's still alienation. You know, it, it doesn't change much. And I think that within capitalism, and that's what, you know, we, we want the creatives, you know, we want people to challenge stuff because we want, you know, capitalism to evolve and adapt as much as we can. You know, so the, it, it becomes it, it integrates this negative energy within itself. You know, any
0: contestation or refusal is being rechanneled through the system. I would, the example I've been using lately to talk about this, uh, and it, it's a lot, but there's uh, the Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Uh, Wozniak, uh, I've met him a couple of times. He is literally, who everyone says he is, he's the guy who actually created Apple computers, like built it, but he built it in this weird, anarchistic, not giving a shit, not wanting to care about making money, change the world, and Steve Jobs say say surd him. It, that's exactly it. Uh, it's a hundred percent it. He figured out, oh, I can do this. I can turn this into a, uh, a way of doing things in capital. That actually, this would be dangerous if it wasn't part of capital. Kind of. So, uh, it's a, it's a really interesting sort of process that they see. Um, any other questions on this paragraph?
3: But I think you know it, uh, it. Just just to show them when they say the mortuary axiomatic, I don't know what's what's what it is in English, but I, my French version is that um, is 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 the molar and the molecular respond to the axiom. You know, uh, later on in other books they will talk about the diagram. So the diagram gives the function to the parts, and uh, I think that's important. That's something really important to understand in, uh, in Deleuze and Guattari stuff. Uh, if you want to make applications, because it's never the parts that are having their own essences. <clears throat> their functions are given by the axiom. And that's the way that the
0: the, the thought system of the losing category is functioning. Ghostbird in the chat actually has a good question of uh, disillusion that is being talked about here happening outside of capitalism, inside of uh, the despotic, inside of
3: Okay, uh, just just for this, I think it's important. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it and reply to it. Do we have any example of this dissolution occurring outside of capitalism? I'm kind of imagining how invasive species destroy ecosystems, but having a hard time seeing a more human example. Let's take this example of uh, destroying an ecosystem. An ecosystem is primarily a system of relations. It's not something that is stable. It's not something that is permanent, and Clearly not eternal. So an invasive species comes in, deterritorializes uh the relations within that system and reorganizes them. There's no there there is destruction, but it's not the destruction of in essence, it's the destruction of the organization of the flux or the connections. So I think that's a good example to actually challenge our mind into thinking in connections instead of, you know, uh, like permanent structures that are being destroyed and re- like re- like uh, reorganized. It's there. The structure is something that is symbolic that we put on top. It never really exists in reality, and the semiotics that we are using are leading us into reproducing this uh, this idea of the the structure coming before the parts.
0: And I also think that they discuss early on uh, that if we want to use the word disillusion here, and I don't want to say that it's directly linked to the changing of the socius, but they've, they've used that same uh, evocative language uh, with the switch from primitive uh, with the written word and how that undid all of the things that came before. And then with capital, as they changed the written word into cat, like they've talked about the same thing, this disillusion, this, this switch to disorder and, slow evolution into other thing, they have talked about it in terms of the switching of the sociuses. I'm going to read a Bergson line that uh, Alyosha posted up because it tends to work really. Disorder is simply the order we are not looking for. You cannot suppress one order even by thought without causing another to spring up. There is no finality or will. It is because there is mechanism. If the mechanism gives way so much the gain for will, caprice, finality, but when you expect one of these two orders and you find the other, you say there is disorder. Formulating what is in terms of what might or ought or should be, and objectifying your regret. And uh, yeah, Bosker, uh, thats the idea. Is if we actually had a living desire that wasn't based purely in image, uh, the system be- would begin to unravel for us. Uh, very, very, very drastically. If unless anyone has any last lines, since that is really the last uh, line of that paragraph, I will continue to the next. Here are the desiring machines, with their three parts. The working parts, the immobile motor, the adjacent part. Their three forms of energy, libido, numen, and voluptus. And their three syntheses, connective syntheses of partial objects and flows, the disjunctive syntheses of singularities and chains, and the conjunctive syntheses of intensities and becomings. The schizoanalyst is not an interpreter, even less a theater director. He is a mechanic, a micro mechanic. There are no excavations to be undertaken, no archaeology, no statues in the unconscious. There are only stones to be sucked, a la Beckett, and other machinic elements belonging to deterritorialized constellations. The task of schizoanalysis is that of learning what a subject's desiring machines are, how they work, with what syntheses. What bursts of energy in that machine what constituent misfires with what flows, what chains, and what becomings in each case? Moreover, this positive task cannot be separated from indispensable destructions, the destruction of the molar aggregates, the structures and representations that prevent the machine from functioning. It is not easy to rediscover the molecules from the giant molecule. Their paths, their zones of presence, their own syntheses amid the large accumulations that fill the preconscious and that delegate their representatives in the unconscious itself, thereby immobilizing the machines, silencing them, trapping them, sabotaging them, cornering them, holding them fast. Emphasis. In the unconscious, it is not the lines of pressure that matter, but on the contrary, the lines of escape. The unconscious does not apply pressure to consciousness. Rather, consciousness applies pressure and straitjackets the unconscious to prevent its escape. As to the unconscious, it is like the platonic opposite whose opposite draws near. flees or it perishes. What we have tried to show from the outset is how the unconscious productions and formations were not merely repelled by an agency of psychic repression that would enter into compromises with them, but actually covered over by anti-formations that disfigure the unconscious in itself and impose on it causations, comprehensions, and expressions that no longer have anything to do with its real functioning. Thus all the statues, the Oedipal images, the phantasmal misas in scene, the symbolic of castration, the effusion of the death instinct, the perverse re-territorializations, so that one can never, as in an interpretation, read the repressed through and in the repression, since the latter is constantly inducing a false image of the thing it represses. Illegitimate and transcendent uses of the syntheses according to which the unconscious can no longer operate in accordance with its own constituent machines, but merely represent what a repressive apparatus gives it to represent. It is the very form of interpretation that shows itself to be incapable of attaining the unconscious. Since it gives rise to the inevitable illusions, including the structure and the signifier, by means of which the conscious makes of the unconscious an image consonant with its wishes. We are still pious. Psychoanalysis remains in the pre-critical age. Yeah, um,
3: we could start at many places, but I would like to go... um... When we are saying, you know, the uh, the difference between the unconscious and the consciousness. Um, so basically, we have the pre-individual drives that are there, and they're always trying to escape consciousness. The subject, the subject is not something that is being liberated. The subject is his own mode of domination, in the sense that. The subject enables or blocks the flux, the desire flux, from the pre-individual. So, into our consciousness, into the way we see ourselves, we are our own fascist, our own police, and we are blocking um, those possibilities or, you know, the, the 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 movement from the potential to the actual. In the sense that, for example, we take the nuclear family or the heterosexual couple. Uh, so the subject will, you know choose as partners or her partners in in regard to that model instead of like choosing freely and you know connecting with people in a pretty crude sense uh randomly so you know I think that's that's important because it 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 challenges the way you know moral philosophy is taking the subject as at the moment subject as the producer, uh, instead of uh, the one that is being produced, but also the one that is not aiming for its own liberation. So I don't know if that makes sense to any of you. I think people are more interested into the written chat. I think uh, in the, in the chat,
0: <laughs> in the chat, everyone's having a discussion about uh, the nature of can punk exist outside of capital, which is oh. That's I know, Roger. I want to get really involved and start having. I know it's a whole thing, but let's let's continue this. Um, the the thing I would like to uh, sort of uh, get anyone's thoughts on, if anyone has any, uh, when when they talk about the unconscious and they're using the terminology they use here, and this is a very more poetic uh, and direct. Uh, again, back to some of these words. It's. Uh, One of them decided to go outside and get a breath of fresh air, as the other one decided to write some more, obviously. Um, But the way that they seem to be having this discussion here is um, that it's not about going back into the representations that the person sees within their unconscious, which would be sort of that classic psychoanalytic, uh, well, I remember this story from my childhood, or here's what I want, here's what I desire, Um, but it's almost uh, the, the... Oh, sorry, Zizek time. Uh, Zizek's joke uh, that psychoanalysis, the first lesson everyone learns is that we don't want what we actually think we want. Uh, that's his sort of underlying thing. That is very much what they're talking about here, that that idea, and that uh, consciousness applies pressure and changes are unconscious. So there are no statues. There's no things that are immutable and unchanging and hard, and hard, uh, uh, concrete, but instead our unconscious is that of this ever-changing, constantly moving set of signs that are being influenced by the conscious. No one is, everyone is having this discussion in the chat. Um, I'm going to move and have, uh, does anyone have a comment or anything on the actual reading?
2: I was just going to say this this bit about like you're saying about the conscious and unconscious seems to me to go back to the this whole section is a great summary of like the whole book basically and this thing about you know trying to move away from the unconscious as something that believes things and you know desires things it's it's the unconscious happens and it's the it's the consciousness consciousness itself or conscious experience which retroactively goes back and applies pressure onto it. I really like that. It's just another way of restating their kind of overall
0: point. And I'm actually going to go ahead and finish uh, the last paragraph because it does add to that finality of this, and I think we can have a a larger discussion about a few things. Uh, So to finish reading. (laughs) Doubtless these illusions would not take hold if they did not benefit from a coincidence and a support in the unconscious itself that ensures the hold. We have seen what this support was, primal repression, as exerted by the body without organs at the moment of repulsion at the heart of molecular desiring production. Without this primal repression's psychic repression, in the proper sense of the word, could not be delegated in the unconscious by the molder forces and thus crush desiring production. Repression, properly speaking, profits from an occasion without which it could not interfere in the machinery of desire. In contrast to psychoanalysis, which itself falls into the trap while causing the unconscious to fall into its trap, schizoanalysis follows the lines of escape and the machinic indices all the way to the desiring machines. If the essential aspect of the destructive task is to undo the edible trap of repression, properly speaking, and all of its dependencies, each time in a way adapted to the case in question, the essential aspect of the first positive task is to ensure the machinic conversion of primal repression thereto in an adaptive, variable manner. is to say, undoing the blockage for the coincidence on which the repression, properly speaking, relies. Transforming the apparent opposition of repulsion the body without organs, machines, partial objects, into a condition of real functioning ensuring the functioning in the forms of attraction and production of intensities, thereafter integrating the failures in the attractive functioning, as well as enveloping the zero degree in the intensities produced and thereby causing the desiring machines to start up again. Such is the delicate and focal point that fills the function of transference in schizoanalysis. Dispersing, schizophrenizing, reverse transference of psychoanalysis. Ooh. and that is uh the end of the mm-hmm. uh, section
3: we made it uh well, we we didn't block
0: <laughs> so the the last paragraph i think it uh, goes into as they've been trying to do the here is actually how far you have to go and how you have to break it down um in order to actually uh, discuss where a person's really coming from what are their desiring machines what are their Actual repressions that are happening rather than the things that they're able to tell you because, again, the images that they've got are these statues that don't actually <laughs> look just have the conversation. No, it keeps going, have the Jack conversation. Jack just stirred the pot, you know. Jack just stirred the pot, he stirred the pot, but it's a thing that matters to this because this is about things in this very section. Would you not disagree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, I don't know if you want me to talk about
2: it though because it, it might just. Derail us again.
0: I I think we're fairly derailed. Yeah.
2: No, I we're we're just debating, we're just talking about whether the you know, these these kinds of different movements and things can have a truly revolutionary potential or not. You know, we're we're just having that debate about whether things are overdetermined or not. Uh I don't wanna I don't want to speak for Jack because I don't think he's on voice chat, and I feel like I'd be <laughs> I'd be <laughs>
3: But, but, you know, that, uh, let, let's just go from there, you know, if we want to talk about the political economy of it all, uh, you know, the whole Marxist uh, understanding Um we, we needed to change. You know, it's the same thing as psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis. That's why Marxism and psychoanalysis kind of worked together at one point um, was to actually undo within the symbolic realm some of those connections. But be, because of May 68 and where Deleuze and Guattari were, it's its not about, you know, de the subject, but it's actually like taking the subject out of the clinic and saying, you know, you'll give up fucking alcohol by taking up running. You know, we will, your, your productive or positive impulses, instead of being reformatted into this addiction, will get you in connecting to something else. So, you know, we'll show you art, we'll show you like physical exercises, yoga, you know, I don't know what else, but it, it's about rechanging the real relationships and <clears throat> the real habitus of a person instead of just playing at the level of categories.
2: I also was going to say, just noting on that primal repression at the beginning of the paragraph, that seems to link up with the earlier point, Brooks, that you were making. And to me, that's kind of, thinking of our discussion about anti-production and the death drive and all that stuff, this seems to me to be the full circle of, like, kind of, yeah, that that thing of, none of these molar sort of processes would be possible if there wasn't an elemental, like, molecular form of, in this case, they're calling it repression or like that anti-productive thrusts. Uh, it w- it, none of this would be possible if it wasn't there in our experience already. Like it can't be sub- implanted into our experience externally. It's it's why it's a misappropriation of the syntheses rather than a whole new set of syntheses that come in okay. and somehow supplant our existing ones.
0: Well, let's take a, a, a little bit here. I'm going to uh, dive in for a second and uh, ask about um, this sort of last little bit um this, this last paragraph as they start talking again, we have seen that this support was primal, was primal repression as exerted by the body without organs at the moment of repulsion at the heart of molecular desiring production. My question, without this primal repression's psychic repression in the proper sense of the word could not be delegated in the unconscious by molar forces and thus crush desiring production. So to say another way, um, the primal repressions that sort of exist uh, are put in place by the molar investments, the molar forces uh, that sort of reorder things in the unconscious and the desiring machines in order for that desiring machine to stay connected to the social machine that has been developed.
2: I, I don't think they're saying they put them in place. Cause I think they're saying if they didn't exist, then molar investments, you know, the molar repression, if you want to call it that couldn't do what it does. If, there wasn't something already about the unconscious that does these things. Like uh, one of the other useful things that Holland says in his bit about um, schizoanalysis and Freud and schizoanalysis and Lacan, it's like two short sections in his book on this, this book. He's like, there's a few terms that D and G try to rescue from psychoanalysis and a few that they try to throw away. One that they're clearly trying to throw away is that a bit, even, even though they describe it as a real phenomenon in a sense One that they do use, though, is primal repression. And I think it, insofar as the unconscious and like desiring production on an elemental, like molecular level does precede everything else, I don't think it's that molar investments place that primal repression there. It's that it it has to sort of interact with it and appropriate it, you know?
0: Well, so then a way that you could read this is that uh, primal repression, um, which exists in the un- unconscious, uh, it basically is creating those little moments of anti-production. Let's think of them as empty blocks that then are able to be utilized by the social machine, the molar forces uh, that place psychic repression into those slots in order to crush desiring production. That that sounds better to me. Okay where where I'm trying to figure out is the cycle because they're talking and they they say very clearly here at the end that yes this this is about sort of those things being reproduced from the molar back into the desiring machines in the unconscious and basically creating the repression that is necessary for its own on like it feels like that is a cyclical always becoming thing
2: yeah that that does sound right to me because it's it's a never ending process right, yes. I'm going to read this bit from Holland from page 56 to 57. Uh, they say, um, let's see. Uh, so uh, desire registers in signs on the organs, as we saw when primal repression caused by antiproduction suspends the activity of connective synthesis. As a result, desire is free to diversify through the network of sign relations, but it can also become trapped in fixed representations deriving from and promulgating social repression. To me, that is, it's like, it's essentially a facet of anti-production. What we understand is primal repression in like a psychoanalytic sense. It's like when they say death instinct, like I think the reason we were getting confused earlier is because we're kind of like playing with psychoanalytic terms, even as they're being undermined. So like while they might not specifically, I think, want to call it primal repression, insofar as that's a concept that exists, they're kind of saying, well, if, this, if primal repression exists, it's this. It's a kind of a for- form or a moment of anti-production."
0: to to read another section from Holland. Um, The therapeutic side of schizoanalysis then combines positive and negative tasks, corresponding roughly to the moments of decoding and recoding in society at large. On the one hand, to subvert molar investments and free subjects from the paranoid and or pious beliefs that keep them subjugated to the alienations of private property imposed by capitalist recoding. On the other hand, to discover and develop molecular investments that express and promote free-form schizophrenia of desiring production released by market decoding. The aim, in short, is to release molecular desire from the constraints of molar representation. Uh, page 99, uh, dead in the middle, right before revolutionary transformation. I have it up in the YouTube if you want to check it out there. Not there it is, now it's finally up um, it's that, that last bit that I really really like because again when we start talking about how repression is created, how the molar representations create the repression inside of the unconscious by basically sort of recreating that sort of uh, pre-subject primal repression that cycle starting
2: I think I agree with you 99%. I would just say, I don't know if I misheard you, but I would say getting rid of primal repression because anti-production on that level is still going to happen. It's about it getting like primal repression becoming linked up to molar representation
0: in a sense. What did you think I said?
2: I don't know if it's my connection because it's been dropping a lot. (laughs) So there's a lot of words that I don't hear when you speak, sorry.
0: Oh no, it's it's that sounded close to what I was trying to say. Oh.
2: I thought I thought you had said something about like getting rid of or moving beyond primal
0: repression. That's why I said that. No, no, I don't repression is necessary and I don't think there's a way uh they don't speak ever about like, you know, eliminating repression and living in a schizophrenic life. Uh they again recognize very cleanly that schizophrenia is like the clue that we have that there's this other way of viewing the world the same way that we're able to see through paranoia the way that reactionary tendencies and fascistics do it's it's intended to be like a lens it's not uh, like the best fascist isn't some true paranoiac who's stuck in his house screaming all the time like that's not how that works whereas the best revolutionary isn't going to be the schizophrenic who's unable to purse two words together like they're very clear about that we have some level of repression it's just about sort of Playing with and understanding how we're able to escape from the repression that is created for us by molar representations that we take uh, sort of into ourselves.
5: Can you guys hear me? Yes, yes. Oh, cool. I'm on my mobile, so I finally got this to work. So, what I'm um, imagining or envisioning or seeing based on what you guys are discussing uh, from Holland is that somehow this primary repression is tied to the uh, the notion of the creation of uh, otherness, that somehow early on um, the production, you know, the building of this machine of the creation of otherness um, is tied to uh, the primary repression. I w- hesitate to say that it is the primary repression. I don't think it's
0: necessary the prime, like i I don't know if I would even necessarily privilege any of the repressions as being primary I think the 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 two types of repression I think they're discussing here um is um basically repression created by images and molar investments that are reabsorbed into the unconscious and essentially begin benefiting themselves through creating anti production in that process uh and repression that is directly in line with keeping the axiomatics functioning, uh, which itself is damaging. there's natural repression and anti-production that's created inside of the three syntheses when they're working at their optimal. So I wouldn't necessarily say that they're, uh, I wouldn't privilege one over the other, but um, saying one is like primary or secondary, but primal I think is what they use when they're talking
5: about that sort of uh, natural Right. Well, it's still not clear exactly um, what primal repression um, is as far as substance or mechanism. So it sounded like, based on what your interjection uh, informed, the point that I was going to make, where then whatever primal repression is, it's kind of in the service of the machine of the creation of otherness, which then is bootstrapped or taken up by the molar representations. And uh, so I guess I'm beginning to understand it within the context or the schema uh, or the scene of how the uh, the molar regimes then are you know, they're, they're kind of causing the conflict around the molecular production of diversity, which seems to be, um, you know, and as this cycles through uh, the architecture that they're proposing, I'm just noticing that somehow in the, in the beginning, the early building blocks of this, there seems to be a, um, an interaction a relation between uh, the primal repression, which again I don't know what uh, that is as far as um, whether it occurs in the body, giving it structure, and the creation of otherness, um, which then did, did you get dropped? Oh, sorry, and and it loops back on itself. The the creation of the otherness from the molar regime um, and kind of constraining the molecular production of uh, of
2: diversity. Can you, can you explain what you mean by the creation of otherness here? Cause I don't see that in what DNG are saying, or is that, is that a way of talking about subjectivity for you or
5: what is that coming from? Yeah. Well, the, I think again, it, it, it leads to a very earlier structuration that happens in the subject where there is a creation of otherness, um, that is, um, kind of inform. We, We dropped you again. As pointed out here, there's the influence of the molar regimes that are even acting, um, you know, through, not just the, the molar regime of the family, but the molar regi- regime or the social regime, which is a molar regime. Um, and that the thread that's running through this is looping back onto itself is, again, the constraining of the p- primal repression, uh, which is injected into the creation of the otherness.
0: Uh, someone Alyosha uh, correct me if I'm wrong we are only actually talking about how I've re- interpreted regimes is that there's two molecular and molar that everything everything is subsumed into one of those and that it's not so much subdividing them the molar into further regimes it's that the molar regime versus the molecular that's how I've been when they refer to regimes in this chapter is that, is that wrong
2: that's that's how I kind of have been seeing it. I mean, I think they can refer to regime sometimes as like when they're talking about the different sociuses, but I think it's more directly about levels of perception and analysis of like seen from this regime, it's this and seen from this regime, it's this. I'm confused about, I'm trying to understand the otherness point because I don't know if that is, that still to me sounds like it's about the theater of like representation, almost like a mirror stage kind of thing. And I don't I confess I don't know a ton about that in terms of psychoanalysis, but I, I think I might be wrong, but I think that they're almost talking about it in an even more elemental level in terms of like the machines and repulsion. Like this there is a primal repression that happens in the sense of like what the BWO has to do as it's created through connective and then disjunctive phase and the machines breaking down and creating the surface and all of this stuff the BWO does this kind of an initial kind of repression that is what is able to end up creating what we later think of as the subject and as an adjacent part all that other stuff so it's all like pre-conscious to me still but it kind of engages with a conscious level maybe
5: yeah I mean that's an interesting question around whether or not the um, uh, the creation of otherness as um something that occurs in subjectivity um how it relates to to this to the bwo um and again because i find that it is i'm claiming that it might be something that's involved in the creation of the of the unconscious machine uh at early stages
0: i i'll admit i'm having I, i don't really know enough to be able to answer that Super super succinctly, Augman. Sorry.
2: Yeah, maybe we put a pin on that
5: and we can bring that in in a review session. Or
0: right. Are you going to be here tomorrow, Augman?
5: Yeah, maybe. I, I'm just putting that out as a hypothesis, not necessarily something to uh, ponder. You know, it may not, I'm kind of putting it out there as a hypothesis in relation to um, the. Uh, the looping function or the 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 flow between the uh the molecular and the molar but yeah i'll try to be here tomorrow
0: yeah it's uh i mean tomorrow during review would be great to be able to go over that the for me the i don't know there's so much for us to go through uh do we have any further questions about the reading any comments because it's been a long few sections uh otherwise i'm inclined to uh we're nearing the two hour mark uh go ahead and drop this to an end pretty quick here and we can continue the uh review tomorrow because I have a lot I want to go over a lot
3: uh, maybe just finish something about the primal repression um, primal repression is, is, is a form of recording into the pre the um, into um, into the humans either like psyche or body so this recording is you know it's pre-subject but as we record at the level it produces the condition of emergence or transformation or becoming of this subject. So when they say that we need to, you know, undo the blockage, is to undo this block the, the blockage into the primal repression phase or moment so we can allow for another type of subjectivity to arise. This is the first step. This is what they're saying. If you want an easy example, a baby is non-codified. You know, uh, it's just through learning that this this learning process uh, imprints itself into the psyche and the body of the baby. So, you know, you're learning to drink, you're learning to walk, you're learning to do many things, you're learning to love, you're learning to interact with others. But the blockages are from those experiences and they deposit themselves into, you know, the pre subject. And this is where they want to go into like unblocking for allowing desire to pass into another way. So it's to destructure the pre-subjective aspect of the subject to allow for new subjectivity. Again, the chat takes over.
0: (laughs) We start getting at the entire sort of point of the book and it's going to be a thing because that's what this is. This is about uh, how we start correcting this, how we start recognizing what is uh, what i would call almost natural repression versus uh what they would call uh mere mere representations of what a repressive apparatus gives my is giving my unconscious to represent um i think there's we're starting to get at the the big points of this and the project so i think that's good but i'm going to go ahead and uh close out uh we can continue chatting but i do need to end the stream at some and the recording and thank all of you for joining us uh what the fuck roger am i just looking at in the chat uh, you guys have a wonderful uh time and uh thank you for joining us uh we look forward to the review tomorrow